On February 24, 2022, exactly one year ago, Vladimir Putin's army invaded Ukraine. The war has destroyed cities, killed tens of thousands of people, and forced 8 million to flee to other parts of the country and Europe. Today, over 17.6 million Ukrainians, more than 40% of the country's population, require humanitarian assistance. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. In this episode, Yulia Abratainska and Chris Tiller, co-founders of Renegade Relief Runners, explain how humanitarian aid organizations are working to protect those affected by Putin's war and what the international community can do to help. Hi, Yulia and Chris. It's great to have you on Dissidents and Dictators. So you both founded Renegade Relief Runners, which HRF has partnered with to help get humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Let's start with how you got involved in this work. Your stories are really interesting because neither of you were really involved in humanitarian relief before February 2022. Can you tell us what brought you to Ukraine? Sure. Um... I have been involved in various NGO activities since very early on in my life, but this is the first project uh, strictly connected to humanitarian aid that I'm involved with. Um, for me, it all started uh, on the 24th of February, actually. Um, I am Polish, so uh, since I'm so close to Ukraine, geographically speaking, um, I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. So my first connection was um, simply helping my friends to get out of Ukraine and um, having them stay in my apartment, helping them with getting their own um, places to stay and all other activities connected to Poland. Um, since then, I got to meet various people who were helping Ukraine in different ways. Uh, that included one of um, one of uh, volunteers whose name is Oleg, who was driving humanitarian aid to Ukraine um, as a solo volunteer. Um, and I've been helping him with getting aid to transport and finding connections uh, for him um, and Oleg connected me to Chris uh, who needed help with getting his first vehicle 24 hours after landing in Poland um, and that's how we met and sort of started working together. Yep and um, I myself uh... Um, I'm a massive history enthusiast and, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've studied and read a lot about, um, uh, the history around surrounding, uh, specifically world war one and world war two, um, a lot of, uh, wartime history within Europe. And, uh, there were a lot of patterns when the invasion began that started to strike out to me as very similar to, uh, the early stages of the patterns that we saw, um, uh, in the beginning and, and prior to the start of World War II. And uh, when I 
began seeing the videos and the images coming through of Russian helicopters shooting rockets at civilian buildings and, and uh, in the early days of the invasion in the Kiev Oblast and in Sumy. Um, those, uh, those images and those videos really kind of struck a chord with me um, from previous atrocities committed throughout history. I, uh, by trade, I'm an airline pilot back in the US, so I have the ability to travel fairly freely. And um, I decided pretty much if I, if I could get the time off, if I could convince my company to allow me to have the time off, that um, uh, I would uh, you know, use those travel benefits to come over here and help as much as I could. At the time, I didn't really have plans to enter Ukraine. I was seeing the uh, immense number of people trying to cross the border out of Ukraine into Poland that had nowhere to go and the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding um, on the Polish side of the border. So I decided I would at least, at the very least, go try to assist people um, who uh, you know, had just crossed the border, didn't have any belongings with them or didn't have anywhere to go, um, at least try to make it away from the border into some of the larger cities where the IDP centers had been set up uh, to help them find resources or you know, help them get to accommodations or whatever I could do. Um, and of course, by the time I had actually made it to Ukraine in, um, or I should say on the ground in Poland by the, uh, first week of April, um, that problem had kind of subsided quite a bit. And, uh, I had brought over quite a bit of humanitarian aid myself in the form of medical aid. Um, so my first thought was to try to figure out how to deliver that to a hospital in need and go from there and basically just try to be as useful as possible. So uh, Julia and I got connected uh, through that same common friend when I tried to figure out how to purchase a vehicle in Poland. And then I spent the next two to three weeks driving around Ukraine, just delivering supplies and trying to be useful. We uh, got a few calls about a couple of evacuations and relocations. Um, and that's kind of how Julia and I kind of started to work together is, um, you know, she needed somebody that could move supplies and, and uh, help with these evacuation requests. And I needed somebody to keep me busy. So by and by, we collected more friends who uh, were doing relatively speaking the same thing. And by about the second or third week of May, we had conglomerated into a formal team. So it sounds like in the early days of the war, it was mostly a matter of just getting supplies from point A to point B as fast as possible. You now run a nonprofit organization um, that's fully formed and called Renegade Relief Runners. Can you tell me a little bit about your mission? Yeah. Um, in the in the early days, it was, uh, like you mentioned, it was pretty much just a, the idea of let's get supplies to where they're needed as fast as possible. And that kind of formed the foundation for how we function today as well, uh, in a way. We had uh, very little funding to start. We're extremely or organically grown. Um, you know, uh, the, the funding streams that we were using were, were very much crowdsourcing. We didn't really have a lot of resources in the beginning for obtaining large amounts of funds to work on large projects, but we did see a problem in the, uh, in the aid community early on. This is something that pretty much anybody that you talk to out here who's worked in the humanitarian sector knows is that, um, Early on, there were massive amounts of supplies flooding into uh, eastern Poland and into western Ukraine that were not making it out to the end user. Um, 
not necessarily, you know, not 100% of the time due to any fault of the people managing that situation. It was just, you know, an enormous amount of aid coming into the country and not a very robust network of uh, um, people willing to kind of deliver those things. So it relied largely on local Ukrainians. Um, but everything was run through us through a network of signal group chats and WhatsApp group chats. And there's like five different messaging platforms or social media that were people you were using to try to get connected. And, um, it was very chaotic in the early days. And so we pretty much made our bread and butter in the early days of, of finding those resources that were already existing that uh, didn't have a home that either, you know, the larger organizations didn't want or didn't have need for, had excess of, and going out to supply these underrepresented communities outside of the large cities uh, with these supplies. So that tenant has kind of stuck with us, uh, trying to be as efficient as possible, sourcing as many things as we can for free. Um, but primarily the focus that we've had is going out to these underrepresented communities outside of the large cities to make sure that they are not forgotten about. Um, because, you know, as the highways and the train lines and everything started to open back up and be easier to travel, there was a large amount of aid flooding into the cities, but, um, there are still an enormous number of people in the surrounding villages that, uh, either don't have the ability to travel, uh, freely or can't, um, can't travel due to physical disability uh, or cut off, you know, in terms of communication um, or any number of reasons why they may not be able to access those supplies that are actually making their ways into the large cities. So that has been our primary focus, uh, along with targeted medical aid now uh, that we have a coordinator in the U.S. who's working on that. Um, and just kind of uh, being the voice for the little guy. So we get a lot of requests from individuals, from individual organizations, uh, orphanages, hospitals, so on and so forth that uh, have very specific needs that uh, we, we try to apply our platform to to make sure that those needs are met. And do those requests all come from this signal network that you were talking about between aid organizations on the ground, between activists and other uh, community members who are trying to help Ukrainian villages? Partially, yes. Uh, I would say that's definitely a large part of it. Uh, however, by now, we developed a network of uh, people in Ukraine who are um, helping us, who know about us and who vote for us. Um, and those people basically uh, reach out to um, hospitals, orphanages, IDP centers, um, refugee centers, other teams, uh, and some, um, some other institutions um, asking if they need help or more of what they need help with. Um, I would say we focused on two um, main regions uh, in Ukraine, and that would be uh, out east towards Kharkiv and, and past Kharkiv and down south, which includes Odessa, Mykolaiv and Kherson. And in both of those uh, directions, we just have people who uh, who are helping us get in contact with uh, with other people who, who need help. Um, a lot of things in Ukraine uh, 
work through friends and through acquaintances. Um, basically, someone knows someone, someone knows um, of our organization and just they give each other's numbers. Um, and that's how a lot of it um, comes to our attention. And now uh, we've had a pretty decent social media presence since um, June or July as an organization. And so now we do have a decent number of people reaching out through us, uh, out to us through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well. Uh, but yeah, that word of mouth functionality uh, is definitely a huge part of it. So uh, we've been putting stickers with our logo and our name on a lot of our boxes, a lot of our deliveries. Um, but uh, big, the biggest thing is just people talk. And uh, one of the reasons this functions so well in Ukraine is that um, the community aspect is is extremely um uh, is, is an extreme part of the, the Ukrainian culture. Um, and in fact, especially a lot of the smaller villages, you have somewhat of a, of a village council or like a multi-village council uh, where elders from different villages will come together and uh, you know discuss common needs and common projects and things like that for the betterment of their, of their individual communities and of their region as a whole. Um, and this, this, uh, structure still very much exists in a formal way throughout most of Ukraine. So, uh, but that mentality kind of propagates through at the, uh, institutional level as well. So, uh, the likelihood is if we go and supply one hospital with their needs, they're very familiar with somebody at a different hospital that, uh, or, or with the needs at, a, at another specific hospital. And, um, they're more than willing to kind of set us off in that direction to ensure that the good is spread around rather than concentrated in one spot. I can imagine that's helpful too at a time when so many people are in need throughout the country and where needs vary so much throughout different regions. Can you tell me a little about what current operations look like on the ground? The war has changed a lot over the past year, so what do you find communities currently need most? Sure. Um... Operationally speaking, it's it's um, it's gotten a little bit easier in some regards and a little bit more challenging in other regards. Um, easier in the sense that over, I would say, eighty percent of the country, it's it's fairly easy to get in and and get pretty much anywhere you need to to deliver this aid. And, and I mean that in the physical sense, like uh, bridges that have been rebuilt or roads that have been cleared of uh, debris from battles i mean back back in back in uh um you know march and april uh even the main highway going into kiev was just littered with burnt out tanks and the the bridges were blown out and you'd have to take these crazy 30 kilometer uh detours through the north or the south of the jatomer highway to try to even get into kiev let alone Kharkiv. and now you know you can drive pretty much straight through the country uh, to get where you need to go fairly unimpeded so um that and we had a fuel shortage over the summer, so that brought new challenges with it. So, I mean, there's there are things that have gotten much easier, uh, operationally speaking, but um, now as the war goes on, there are other administrative reasons why the, the humanitarian aid effort might be getting more difficult. For example, there's a lot of areas now where you very much need formal permission to get into. Um, some of that 
as uh, relating to controlling information flow. Others is uh, relating to um, you know strings of deaths of, of civilian aid workers, whether that's humanitarians or evacuation organizations or what have you. Um, that uh, you know, as these things kind of unfold, it uh, puts an administrative pause on our ability to access certain regions. Um, so that has been a that has been a, a fairly consistent hurdle, I'd say, over the last six months to us being able to accomplish some of our larger projects that we'd like to. But day to day operations, I think, have just been getting steadily easier, and uh, the I would say the country over. At a administrative level, they recognize that, you know, those of us that are out here doing good work um, very much know the lay of the land and are going to try our best not to be in the way. And we're a very welcome site in most of the places that we've shown up. So it's uh, it's the, the level of cooperation feels much nicer as time goes on. Right. I think it's always difficult to strike that balance between doing things at a very local, decentralized level and then managing something enormous on a national level. And you need both to some extent, right? Yeah. You need to be able to control that flow of resources and be able to effectively get aid from one nation to another. Right. But then in terms of getting it out on the ground, it's sometimes easiest if you don't have to deal with bureaucracy, administration, if you can just get it as quickly as possible where it needs to go. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I would say uh, for the second half of the question, um, in terms of what people most need on the ground right now um, out in these communities, obviously, one of the things that's been all over international news is uh, Putin's war on, on energy um, and weaponizing winter uh, is a term that has been thrown out um, fairly, fairly consistently and it's very accurate. Um, here in, in large cities within Ukraine, it's it's very visible, but it's um, people have more uh, ability to kind of cope with the losses, loss of power, loss of electricity. Uh, a lot of these buildings, it's um, they don't necessarily rely on one form of energy or another to to maintain heat, for example. So there's not as much of a of a uh, disaster humanity on a humanitarian level when it, when it comes to the big cities on an energy level. However, water is one area of public sanitation that is becoming extremely difficult for large cities to manage. And you can imagine that moving out to the small villages, these issues are only exacerbated where access to medication and clean water sources is already at a premium. Um, and I would say when it comes to the small villages, a lot of these areas are places that have existed for a long time, which is a very poor way of saying that, but the the people are extremely hardy and they they have managed to get by on less than they need for quite a long time. And uh, I have been extremely impressed going into some of the small villages, especially way out in the deep east, where you know the communities have come together and they've created either uh, you know underground bomb shelters that are set up with wood burning stoves and a generator so at least there's one community hub where everybody can come and get warm and make sure that they have what they need um, in individual homes it's much more difficult obviously they don't have the best insulation so they rely on either electric heat or the ability to go collect wood for heat as well um, 
But one of the biggest hurdles to them being able to actually do that, and especially the recently deoccupied territories, is that uh, as the Russians leave, they leave behind a trail of um, explosive devices. Um, and improvised, I think, would be a very good word for it because there are no, there's no limit really to, to the uh, ingenuity that, that the Russians have displayed in uh, engineering atrocity as far as uh, placing hand grenades in, in beehives, um, which is, is a couple of stories that we've heard. That's horrible. Placing mines around wells or in wooded areas. Um, you know, part of this is to deny the advancing Ukrainian forces access to these resources, but unfortunately the people that actually live there are also being enormously affected. Um, they've contaminated wells, they've, uh, you know, denied access to entire areas by placing explosive devices, um, destroyed fields. There were a few stories that we've heard where, uh, especially at the Kherson Oblast, which has been occupied since pretty much the beginning of the invasion, um, you know, Ukrainian civilians have had to bury their food underground to prevent it from being stolen by Russian troops. Um, there are, you know, bodies washing up on the shore of the Dnipro River. So one of their main water sources has been contaminated. Groundwater has been contaminated. Uh, in a lot of areas that were not allowed to grow food um, throughout the growing season to actually sustain themselves. Um, and it, uh, it's just kind of propagated into this uh, humanitarian disaster going into winter where now people don't have access to the, the supplies that they need to keep themselves warm. They don't have access to medicine because the infrastructure has been destroyed and their vehicles have been taken. And, um, you know, they don't have access to, to water or food either. So it's pretty much anything mm -hmm. that you could imagine um, these people really do need. And I mean... What you're saying really highlights that this war is not just against the Ukrainian military, but it really affects civilians. And we know that Putin's army has already committed crimes against uh, humanity and war crimes. And I think the stories that you share highlight that when Russian soldiers are in retreat, you know, they do what they can to cause the most damage, even to those people who are not fighting on the front lines, um, which highlights as you're saying, the need just to get as much aid as we can to those smaller villages. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in your experience, is there a difference between the needs of people in those bigger cities like Kiev um, versus these smaller villages on the outskirts, either in the east or the south that you've been visiting? I would say definitely. Um especially big cities are doing quite well right now. There is no shortage of food and some people um, still work and have a possibility to just go simply to the market and, and buy whatever they need. Um, those small villages are, I would say, were way more affected than, than the large cities. Um, as Chris said before, um, some of those people people are left with no way of um, transporting themselves into cities or even bigger towns nearby where they would normally go shopping. Um, so those people 
um, were left without no way of getting access to, to those products like medication, basic hygiene products and food. Um, so in big cities, they definitely do need stuff like generators for power outages. Um, they definitely need still aid in hospitals. They, some of the places still definitely need food. Um, but then those, those small towns and small villages out east and down south, they need absolutely anything you could imagine from, from food to, to very, very, very basic daily items. And it's interesting because um, there's kind of a, a blending point as well. When you get um, into certain areas without, without naming too many details, but when you get into certain areas, there's almost this blending of society because um, rural Ukraine is still very much uh, in this phase of agrarian society. Um, there's a lot of trade and barter that goes on. Um, you know, there, there might be a few scant shops here and there. People generally tend to travel into the larger cities to sell their goods or set up roadside stands. And usually those things are used to buy things that they can't create themselves, right? But um, in the larger cities, the biggest, I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to people that are, make, that are going without has to do with the... Um, the lack of job availability and the fact that these people still very much consider these these cities their home, obviously. So in places like Kharkiv, um, you know, you go into downtown Kharkiv and, and most of the shops and stores and restaurants and, and what was a once a extremely populous, bustling college town um, are just are just boarded up and a, a large portion of the population has moved back but there's just not the infrastructure there to support them in terms of jobs so then you move that out to some of these uh, areas where there's sort of a mixing of society where you have this kind of um, agrarian society around but then there are these large apartment blocks that have been set up uh, and you'll have hundreds of families living there. And uh, there's a couple of areas that we've been to that are, you know, 60 kilometers from the nearest gas station, 60 kilometers from the nearest pharmacy or grocery store. Um, but they're, they're very much of people living in apartment blocks. So there's no chance for them to set themselves up like some of these people that, uh, you know, own homes and, and the, in agricultural areas. Um, so they can't grow their own food. They can't, you know, uh, they, they can't travel to, to get their own medicine or anything like that. Um, so you have these kind of pockets of people that were set up kind of on the fringes of this uh, modern large city infrastructure out in these uh, smaller cities that have been completely destroyed. Like Kupiansk, for example, the, the city itself virtually completely destroyed but there are fringe settlements that still have apartment blocks with hundreds of families living in them but they are 60 kilometers from the nearest any sort of infrastructure that's available to actually sustain them so mm -hmm. uh, when you show up you know they they really really do need everything because they they just all they have to survive it's like imagine imagine being thrown into the apocalypse and all you have to survive is what's in your apartment <laughs> Yeah, um, it really does feel like the apocalypse for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. 
And, you know, you've mentioned a good point that in these, in some of the villages that, uh, that you've uh, talked about, they're very isolated because of all the destruction, roads destroyed, but also unexplained ordinances that are left by the Russian army. And I imagine it's quite difficult. It, you know, it goes both ways. People can't get out of those areas. And then it also makes it very difficult to get aid into those areas. Right. Can you talk about what it's like to actually try to navigate some of those roads? Yeah. Um, depending on how deep we go, and, and we have been focusing most recently on uh, the communities that were most recently liberated uh, and a lot of communities that are very close to the front line. Um, you know, generally speaking between, I mean, the closest I think we've been is one kilometer to about, uh, 10 to 15 kilometers, um, on average. So very much still within the range of artillery, occasionally within the range of gunfire, uh, occasionally within literally the line of sight of Russian lines, uh, in a couple of instances. And, um, you know, the, one of our more recent, uh, aid trips down to the Kherson region was literally a week after uh, liberation. And we showed up in the city and there were quite a few aid organizations actually that had made their way into the city, um, most notably being the, uh, the World Central Kitchen. Um, and uh, those guys had already had a uh, food truck set up and um, there were medical organizations coming in, dropping off aid and organizations like ours coming in to drop off kind of generalized humanitarian aid. And, um, but as we started to deliver to the city center, we realized like there are quite a few organizations here doing this and there is virtually nobody leaving town other than Ukrainian locals that might, you know, be trying to actually move some of this humanitarian aid out, uh, you know, east of the city. So we went east of, uh, Kherson and, um, spent, uh, quite a few days traveling into Bereslav, um, and Borhunka and, uh, a couple of the surrounding villages as well. And there, except for in some of the larger settlements, there weren't that many people left, but Bereslav still had like 20 or 30,000 citizens when we first got into town. And this is a village. So it sounds like Renegade Relief Runner's work fits into the whole network of other humanitarian organizations by trying to identify areas where aid is not getting to. Yes. Obviously, you know, those big cities like Kherson, and for to remind our audience, uh, Kherson was liberated by the Ukrainian military back in November. Um, those are cities that a lot of aid organizations focus very heavily on. Whereas you all try to identify the areas that might be more isolated, that might not be receiving the same quality of aid and try to get it over there yourselves. Right. Yeah. And we're definitely not exclusive in this, in this, in this, uh, methodology either. We've, we've run across, I've run across quite a few organizations that do do the same thing, same type of thing, which is phenomenal because it, it very much has to be a balanced effort and we're very glad to see that we're not the only organization that's doing this and we don't want to give the impression that we are because that would be you know uh diminishing very very due credit to other people that do do the same thing but yeah it's um you know getting out to some of these these villages can be challenging um 
uh, in some of the villages that we regularly go to, it can be as simple as there really are no roads. And when you have military operations being conducted on traditionally dirt roads, now you have, you know, relatively passable dirt roads that have been turned into mud bogs. Um, you know, when a, when a tank or a, a BMP or something goes through some of these, these mud roads, especially when it's wet, uh, it creates these ruts that can be six inches to a foot deep. Um, and then when the winter comes along, that freezes and it just turns into this mangled, gnarly mess. <laughs> so we rely on, you know, four wheel drive vehicles, um, which we've been fortunate enough to be donated a couple of those to get out there. Um, and we had been doing these in two wheel drive vehicles before and it just, it's, it's not fun, not fun. So, <laughs> um, but you know, in this, in the, some of the more recently liberated areas, you're dealing with blown out bridges and taking alternate routes. And of course, none of these alternate routes are published. So you're having to go around and talking to, uh, soldiers at block posts and asking what the best way to get around is. And Hey, if I go this way, am I, am I going to run into a bunch of mines or has this road been cleared by EOD yet? Um, and there is always a danger that even in some of these areas that have been being traveled by Ukrainian, uh, military that have been cleared by EOD, that they miss something, um, happens all the time. And we know people that have been blown up by mines, um, and of course, you know, the military deals with their, their own individuals have been blown up by mines all the time. And it's, um, that it's a constant threat out in some of these areas that, uh, as the ground has traveled over more, as dirt is moved, as things freeze and thaw, you always run the risk of uncovering something that has been previously missed by an EOD crew. So that's always on our mind. And we always take precautions for that as best we can. Um, but really it's just, um, it's just, it just comes down to knowing where we want to go and knowing that there has to be a pathway to get there and making sure that we're properly equipped to do so. And then just, uh, kind of, it's uh, sort of a choose your own adventure game of talking to, um, uh, checkpoint guards, uh, locals and, um, you know, making sure that we're going the, the most traveled route and trying to, uh, make it to where we need to go. So. I imagine it entails quite a lot of flexibility, playing things by ear and oh, yeah. listening to the advice of those around you. Yeah. We are always laughing that the plan never stays the same for more than two hours. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The best thing that you can be is wrong. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to getting where you need to go, because, um, you know, if you, uh, if you think that you're right all the time, then that's when you get yourself into a situation that you wish you hadn't or can't get yourself out of, or, uh, you know, it's, it's always way cheaper, um, and way easier just to turn around or to stop and, uh, and back off than it is to, uh, run into a, run into a terrible situation that you can't get yourself out of. So it's, some days, right. It's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah. Some days we get skunked and that's, and that's okay. If it adds to our information portfolio, then we can go back and reassess and, and try again. We've definitely had days where we started out at six, 7am planning to be somewhere. And then it takes all day just to figure out how to get there. And we're like, okay, well, I don't really want to be five kilometers from the front line at, you know, after dark. So we're going to go home, uh, you know, 
with this new information in hand and just postpone our delivery another day. And uh, then we go out, get it done, get it done safely, and everybody goes home. So. And you guys are mostly on the road. I feel like every time I've called you, you're usually driving from one place to another, whether you're on a run to deliver aid or whether you're picking up supplies. So you have to be flexible, but that means that you're constantly shifting from place to place. Definitely. Um, I, I don't think we stay anywhere uh, longer than a week at this point in time. Um, we established a base of operation in Ukraine, luckily, um, and it still hasn't solved the, um, the problem or a situation that we basically live out of hotels and vans uh, on a daily basis. But this is, this is sort of um, how this work is and we just got used to it. Yeah, it was a massive quality of life improvement. At the very least, we got a place everybody can go back to. Nobody has to lug around all of their luggage and belongings with them all the time. We have a place to store protective equipment. We've got a um, place to do laundry, uh, <laughs> semi-reliable Wi-Fi, and, and uh, you know, a warehousing space, which vastly improved our efficiency because you know, before we were just... You know, we'd have maybe three or four vehicles in a convoy and we'd be sitting on the side of the street in Kiev unloading a ton and a half of aid just to make sure that we repacked it correctly. So that, you know, it's just, there's, <laughs> there's so many little, little things that we were doing before that just ate into our time so much. But yeah, no, we, um, we're driving fairly constantly. It's, it's a big country. I mean, even Kharkiv seems like it's pretty far east but it's not even as far east as you can go and if you want to drive back to poland in one shot from Kharkiv, it's about 16 and a half hours um so pretty much anywhere we go on any given day is between at least a three or four to seven or eight hour drive um and then luckily kind of gone are the days of us driving 16 hours straight all that that does happen occasionally Wow. More, more occasionally, I think, for me than anybody else. <laughs> let's let's say that Chris is uh, the only one who is able to stay awake thirty six hours straight while driving. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you got to do it though. Sometimes it's just. I have to say that's very impressive. Impressive, especially when navigating some of those roads that have been damaged so heavily. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you've given. You've shared some really great stories about what it's like to be on the road. Um, and I'm wondering if you can give us just a better sense of this, how this whole process of getting aid into Ukraine actually works. Because I think a lot of Americans, you know, care very deeply about Ukraine. They give a donation online and then that's it. They don't necessarily see how it actually gets there. And I wonder if you can illuminate this a little for our listeners what, when somebody gives a donation, when they donate money online, what happens then? Well, let's maybe start it off a little different. Um, I would say that this whole process is, um, is going on a few levels at the same time. Um, we get requests for need for some kind of aid uh, from various places. Um, we first try to fulfill that request from 
whatever we have on hand uh, in the warehouse or whatever we can get through our partners um, or donors in Poland through in-kind donations, etc. Um, and then we move on to, if we cannot fulfill it in this way, then we go into um, one of our campaigns um, and budget in that need, uh, whether it's just buying more diapers or buying a rehabilitation table for a facility um, in Ukraine. Um, so when you donate, I would say that depending on which campaign you're going to donate to, you can track your donation um, through our social media because um, we post fairly frequently um, and we always say that something was either donated or purchased uh, through this and that campaign um, and this is how you can basically track the aid that we are buying through the donations and um, administratively speaking so we have we have two foundations so renegade structurally speaking i should say renegade relief runners is the team that functions on the ground in Ukraine and is the face and the project basis for uh, really the birthplace of uh, the two foundations that we, we started. Um, and so I started Renegade Relief Foundation in the United States and Julia started uh, Fundacja Lator in Poland. And part of the reason we did this is um, a to have a a registered 501c3 verified foundation in the United States is, is huge for transparency, for donor visibility, for opening up access to all sorts of programs. Um, but the big reason that we started the foundation in Poland is, and this kind of comes back more to your question, is that um, physically moving humanitarian aid into Ukraine across the border has become administratively way more difficult. Uh, that, that way more difficult than it was in, uh, in the early days, um, back in, you know, April, May, June, even up through, I think July, you could pretty much show up with a vehicle full of humanitarian aid at the border and say, Hey, I'm a volunteer. I've got a van full of humanitarian aid. And then they check your documents and boom, you're gone. Um, very simple. It's not even a process. It's just basically you're just crossing the border nowadays. Um, because of the amount of corruption um, that has kind of popped up around the humanitarian effort. Um, and this is not solely a Ukrainian issue. This is, there are people out there, there are organizations out there that have very much tried to take advantage of the situation. Um, and what's the best way to make something disappear? Well, send it through a border where there's no accountability. So they fixed that problem or are trying to fix that problem by instituting accountability in the form of paperwork and tracking. So um, we have to have an organization that is physically donating the goods uh, that we're taking across the border, a parent organization. Um, and that generally functions as Julia's organization, signing that off to a Ukrainian organization for end user. Um, whether that's the hospital we're bringing medical supplies to or a humanitarian center that we partner with or something, but gone are the days of us just being able to say, Hey, you know, we're a spunky group of individuals with a van full of aid and we're going to drive out to 
God knows where and, and hand it out to people. Um, and this, we actually have run into issues with this where we have supplies that we've brought in for a very specific process or project and we're not giving them to somebody it's like a, like an organization. We're going to go physically install, say water filters out in these villages, or we're going to go hand off, you know, uh, three tons of, of MREs to different units or to different, uh, um, villages or what have you, uh, where there is not a very specific end user. Um, but now we're actually looking at starting a third NGO in Ukraine to be that end, end user recipient point, um, to simplify that process even more. So there is a effectively a three layer approach for, uh, fundraising accountability for in-kind aid accountability and for end user accountability. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but it honestly, when it's all put together, when everything's said and done, it's actually going to greatly simplify the process that we have to use to get aid into Ukraine. So, uh, I, in some places, there's a misconception about the corruption, uh, that entails getting aid into Ukraine. And it sounds like what you're saying is that does, that did exist to some extent in the early days of the war, but now countries like Poland and also Ukraine have implemented better administration and sometimes bureaucracy to heavily check all of the contents of the aid trucks going into Ukraine to make sure that you're actually getting aid materials where they need to be. Uh, yeah, definitely. Both Poland and Ukraine uh, have implemented some solutions to um make sure that the aid is going where it needs to go. And there is a great deal of documents involved in moving aid right now, mm-hmm. um, which, yes, it does help with uh, preventing corruption and, and grifting and stealing uh, of humanitarian aid. Um, but at the same time, it also, I would say, makes the process harder once in a while yeah that's it's um that's why we're hoping to once we get this ukrainian foundation set up um as the recipient that will kind of solve a lot of those issues but it it really does show i mean it, it seems like every couple of weeks we hear news of some new string of of uh terminations in in the you know, Ukrainian tax office or the border office. Most recently, actually, they just fired pretty much all of the higher command to the border um, because they uncovered a string of corruption uh, at the border. And so it it really does speak to um, the fact that Ukraine really is trying to dig its way out of this reputation. Um, and most famously, most recently, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Um, it was a very high-level... Uh, businessman and, um, and lobbyist, uh, who I believe in the very early days of, uh, of Zelensky's, uh, campaign was actually a, a very large donor. Um, but you know, he, he was involved in a very large scale corruption scheme. And, um, you know, I think it, I think it spoke a lot to the fact that, uh, Ukraine is really trying to set a standard for corruption because minus the fact that this guy, effectively, you know, helped Zelensky, um, with campaign financing and everything. Um, he still got, you know, effectively, uh, investigated and I believe arrested or indicted somehow, um, 
when he was implicated in this uh, in this fraud ring. So it is it is improving a lot, um, but I think what it comes down to is just uh, uh, you have to find a pathway that you trust the most to ensure that these things are going to get where they need to go. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes it's the foreign NGOs that are that are the worst. Uh, um, at, uh, um, at committing these these uh, these crimes, but the I think the Ukrainian and Polish government have, through a series of trial and error over the last year, started to lock down a methodology that, at the very least, is going to give them the ability to uh, audit who needs to be audited, and um, you know try to try to start clamping down on some of these practices. So, right. And I think we've developed so much infrastructure over the past year for getting aid effectively into Ukraine. You know, what started out in the beginning as very localized operations now have very sophisticated methods of getting aid into those uh, smaller cities around Ukraine. So uh, hopefully it will keep getting easier. Um, and I mean, hopefully, eventually we won't have to deliver aid at all. Hopefully this war will end. But in the meantime, uh, my fingers are crossed that um, your path from getting aid uh, from Poland into Ukraine uh, will be smoother and smoother. Thank you. We've, we've talked a lot about some of the challenges you've faced, um, as well as stories from your aid deliveries on the road. Um, what are some moments that have stuck with you? Oh, um, quite a few of those, but... Um... We can just start with one or two. Sure. Um, I would say that one of the moments uh, that was very, very, very uh, recently uh, would be this. Uh, we visited this community actually close to Kupiansk, um, very, very late because uh, we were on our way um, out, I would say, towards, towards the western part of Ukraine. Um, but we visited this community and we had some uh, aid to distribute still for civilians. And um, we visited some homes uh, in the small villages and we were asking um, people for tips if their neighbors are uh, still at home uh, or their neighbors still live there. And people were pointing us um, in directions of their neighbors and people who still were living in that village. But uh, for me, the most touching moment was when um, this older, uh, older gentleman came out specifically, like run after us to go and ask if we have been in this uh, previous village because his uh, relatives live there and um, they also would need some um, some um, aid uh, delivered to them. Um, and same village people were um, were pointing us in the direction of homes where elderly people who couldn't move were uh, living and making sure they got their packages as well. So this was very, very heartwarming. And um, I would say that something proving uh, our point 
that those communities are very tight-knit and they take care of each other. Um, That's wonderful. And um, most recently for me, um, when I... Uh, when I went out to uh, Kherson city and into the to the villages surrounding Kherson city, um, it's an interesting kind of an interesting idea because the um, there is kind of a, an underlying feeling in in some regions of Ukraine that that Kherson is not really a Ukrainian city. I can't speak for everybody, but this is something that I've heard kind of repeated. Um, and to be honest, it, it gave me this idea that I didn't really know what to expect when I showed up. Um, the, uh, you know, when generally speaking, when we show up places, obviously people are very grateful and, and there's, um, kind of a pomp and circumstance about it. And people want to invite you in for tea and it's very friendly, but coming into Pearson, um, I think when we got into the city and when we got into some of the surrounding villages, I experienced the greatest degree of um, the true sense of, of, of what it means to be free and to have that kind of really strong national and cultural identity. Uh, it felt like I was walking into um, one of the, the, the films that we've all seen from World War II, where, you know, the, the allied troops roll into the villages that have been liberated and people are waving flags and handing out flowers and asking for autographs and, and that, that kind of atmosphere existed there. Everybody was wearing flags around their back. They were waving the Ukrainian flags around. There were crowds of people walking around singing, you know, the, the Ukrainian national anthem, singing the Ukraine, singing all sorts of Ukrainian folk songs. Um, and it was just such an incredible thing to witness, to see a community of people that, you know, less than a week ago um, was living under Russian occupation and having their, uh, their cultural identity, in some cases, literally beaten out of them. Um, you know, strolling through town, all the billboards were still covered up with Russian propaganda and, um, you know, the, the signs of liberation were still there, very, very, very fresh. Um, but to go into places like that and to experience that level of just explosive Ukrainian cultural identity uh, bursting through, you know, what was it, eight or nine months of occupation um, was unreal. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life and unlike anything I'll probably ever experience again. I can't imagine it. Yeah, you can go online and you can see videos and images and it's it's amazing just to see the the energy that was in the air after the Russians left Kherson. Yeah. Yeah. Something very interesting is uh, that during the time Chris was there, um, he mentioned that kids were not asking for candy as they usually do or mm -hmm. toys. They were asking if uh, we have more of Ukrainian flag patches on us. Yeah, yeah. They wanted anything wow. having to do with Ukrainian symbology, anything, anything that we had on us that was dealing with uh, Ukrainian symbology. And um, we actually went out and ordered like a thousand tiny Ukrainian flag patches to to go hand out to people in some of these communities because it uh, it's 
it's pretty incredible when you experience those kinds of things, just, uh, um, counter to what you, I think, um, expect really. Uh, but in another instance, we, uh, we had a couple of spare Ukrainian flags on us. Um, occasionally we like to swap them out for the border guard or for the, uh, the checkpoint guards when their flags are all tattered and, and beat up from the wind. But, um, there was a guy and his daughter when we got into Bereslav who, uh, and this is a place, this is, this is a place that you can literally look across the river and see the Russians. Um, they had only gotten around to painting one half of the, the spire for the city back into Ukrainian colors. If you walk to the backside of it, it's still Russian colors. Um, so very, very fresh, uh, liberation. And, um, they, the guy asked us specifically, he's like, do you have a spare Ukrainian flag? Because there's none in our village. We don't have any Ukrainian flags in our village. And, um, you know, we got to present them with this flag and he draped it around his daughter and tied it around her neck. And, and, uh, it was really a beautiful thing to be a part of. Thank you so much for sharing that. In the last couple of minutes, I want to ask you, for those of our listeners who are not able to necessarily volunteer their time on the ground in Ukraine, what else can the international community do to help humanitarian aid efforts? Really just um, keep the word out, keep, keep, the, keep the word alive. Um, this is, uh, I, I think that probably for somebody overseas who's looking to become more closely connected to what's happening in Ukraine, other than social media and, and reposting and, and getting involved online. Um, there are, especially in the United States, there are, enormous, there are an enormous number of Ukrainians living in the United States, uh, first, second, third generation Ukrainians. And uh, especially on the East Coast, I know Chicago, New York, uh, Nashville, Austin, um, quite a few places out there have a very large Ukrainian community, very large Ukrainian diaspora that's very, very active, very well developed. Um, so just, you know, I would say that the best way, if you wanted to get more connected, wanted to learn more, wanted to get more directly involved with an effort that's in your home country, go find that Ukrainian diaspora, go find uh, a way to get involved with them because um, many of them have formed their own foundations or have their own volunteer efforts going on over in the United States, whether that's uh, information rallies or benefit concerts or fundraisers or literally packing shipping containers full of medical aid and sending it overseas. Everybody's doing something. And I guarantee somewhere close to you, there's probably one of those groups that is active. Well, Chris and Yulia, thank you so much for your time. And thank you especially for the tireless and brave work that you're both doing on the ground. As a reminder, HRF's Ukraine Solidarity Fund is dedicated to supporting Ukrainian activists, civil society leaders, and humanitarian aid organizations protecting human rights in Ukraine. If you want to support organizations like Renegade Relief Runners, I encourage you to donate to HRF's Ukraine Solidarity Fund by visiting hrf.org donate. Thank you again so much. Slava Ukraini. Slava.